This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you once again from the West Coast, this is Politicoast. Today is October 21st, 2022. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Scott Delenderboom. And we're back, kind of, sort of. We're at least doing this special NDP leadership recap. We will be coming back regularly very soon. We're still figuring out exactly how and what that's going to look like. But we need to talk about BC's new premier, David Eby. Yeah, some stuff happened while we were away. The BC Liberals changed their name, or they're thinking about it. They announced the football club-esque name they want to run with. BC United. It's not official yet. Yeah. Federally, the Conservatives, unsurprisingly, picked Pierre Polyev as their leader. That was like the least interesting thing that happened on our hiatus. The only interesting thing was just how big a blowout it was. That's true. Uh, It's easy when you disqualify your competition, which brings us back to BC politics. Yes, this week, the NDP finished its leadership contest in an acclamation by disqualifying the only competitor, rising upcomer climate activist, Anjali Apadurai, who was deemed to have skirted too many laws around election financing, brought in too many fraudulent members, and therefore unleveled the playing field and is now watching from the sidelines rather than having a clash of ideas with David Eby. Let's maybe start with how we got here. Like, even before the investigations, before the reports, we had a race. We had what, at the start of the summer, it didn't even look like we were going to have a race. It was David Eby looking at this. He was the only declared candidate. He announced and had almost unanimous caucus support last four members. Early August starts and Apadurai announces her campaign. And it seems like it'll be a standard left climate single issue-esque type campaign that just tries to move the party a bit, but ultimately simmers out. And then things went wrong <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. Just where to even begin on this? The uh, like EB had clearly worked the party apparatus, the caucus and everything to basically make this a smooth handoff, a the party or doing just the okay, we're giving this to the obvious successor sort of thing. To the extent that he like never really bothered to put together a proper campaign, which was probably where this whole thing actually just started spiraling out of control because that made it real easy for anyone to throw their hat in the ring and be the opposition or the not and not EB person for everything to coalesce around. And what they really should have done is had some backbencher that you've never heard of throw their hat in the ring and at least had the appearance of a contest rather than a coronation. Because like you mentioned with the EC, it was pretty close to coronation in practice. It just overwhelmingly went for Pierre. But there were a bunch of campaigns, things got fought out, and 
ultimately he comes off in a stronger position with respect to the legitimacy of his win compared to here just because there was an actual campaign with real alternatives on there. And yeah, even though Patrick Brown got DQ'd. Like Jean Charest was still just, on the ballot. He represented most yeah, of the exactly. same things. There was definitely reasons you might prefer Brown over Charest and vice versa. But you could go one way or the other. And Aitchison was still on the ballot. There were moderates that Brown was trying to represent still there. <sighs> the NDP had nothing like that. And so there's that element. And then Evie's campaign through the summer was also plagued by a few gaffes. There was the point when he was asked about a challenger coming in and he off the cuff said he was frustrated or something by the fact this would delay the handover of power. I don't have the quote exactly up in front of me, but it came off as that kind of very entitled thing that you don't usually want to say in public when you're a politician, especially one in something that's supposed to be a democratic race. And so that upset a lot of people. And then he also had a couple policy things. One, he mused around jailing people with addictions or forcing them into addiction treatment, which is a debate to be had. But the way he kind of off the cuff did, raised a lot of concerns about the depth of the po thought on policy he was having. And, and this is David Eby. We were expecting a lot of policy to come out and really nerdy stuff. And it wasn't until early October, late September that we finally got his housing plan, which I think excited a lot of people. But it's Decent. It doesn't move things as far as I would like, but I, I was admittedly hoping for a little more than kind of just bringing the rest of the province in line with where Vancouver is on zoning. But it's a start. It's going to help. But yeah, that's like the only policy we've seen, which I don't know. We like to talk about policy and it's the thing that incites us, but you know, leadership races are not won or lost on policy. But it's also sometimes uh -oh. the only time members really get to have that debate. Conventions get ignored a lot of the time. And so having that battle of ideas over which direction your party should take on things like the environment, reconciliation, the overdose and toxic drug crisis on housing would have been healthy. Yeah, well, what I was going to say is that what they are one on is membership signups, which and the membership, which I think there's a larger discussion to be had about whether the, the kind of like instant members are really the best way to select a leader. But he wasn't even really doing that, which is the more bizarre part is that I can understand a campaign prioritizing doing membership sales over putting out policy. And like, that was the strategy that Brown was doing in the Conservative Party leadership race to the point where he had a very impressive sign-up number, and until the Pierre Polyev numbers came out, was basically a record sign-up for a membership race. Basically put out no policy, but you know that's at least a, okay, this guy is in it to win it to really do everything he can to win. You just didn't see that from Evie well, at all. This is where we start to have to go off of rumors and allegations, and this all starts, I think, in mid-September. So Rob Shaw drops a bombshell of a story in Czech News talking about the allegations against Dogwood and Apadurai, which we'll get into in a second. But the membership numbers that I think it was Vaughn Palmer first leaked were that the NDP was sitting at about 11,000 members going into the race. David Eby's campaign had signed at 6,000, but Apadurai was looking at 11,000, possibly twice as many as Eby, which 
depending on how the existing membership broke, gave her a realistic chance. Like, she didn't need to win the majority of them, but if she could pull 30 or 40% of the existing base, which you have to remember, this is the NDP, there are people who just have memberships but usually hate the direction of the party, that's just the nature of it. So she could realistically have won this on votes, on the way it's BC NDP doesn't have a weighted ballot system. I think that may have actually helped in this situation. I don't know for sure. Helped who? Uh, helped EB. It would have actually worked against her because I have to assume a lot of her signups were Metro Van and Island based, but I don't know for sure. No one's released anything like that kind of breakdown versus EB could have carried a lot of the interior votes, but maybe he wouldn't have. We won't ever know because we won't have that vote. And so with those membership numbers kind of sitting around there, and that was after the close of membership sales, it became apparent the NDP establishment was in trouble. I think there was a path forward where EB could have pitched to Apodurize members and said, I hear why you're here. I'm the competent candidate, the viable candidate, the person who can hit the ground running on this and effectively champion that and kind of pivoted and gotten those votes. But for the most part, like you say, people signed up quick and wanted to sign up for their chosen candidate. So it was clear she had some advantage in this race. And then we get the allegations. And do you want to start there? Yeah, so there's several different allegations kicking around. The most notable one is the coordination with Dogwood and to a lesser extent 350.org, both climate group, though I think Dogwood's a little more general than just climate, but and basically coordinating with them on their putting of resources into signing up members for her on that in violation of the rules around third parties involving themselves in elections, including leadership elections. And here's where everything gets a bit gray zoned, right? Because leadership elections aren't as strongly governed by BC's campaign finance laws as regular elections provincially or locally, because ironically, parties like to write themselves out of their own rules. And the NDP wrote these rules. So another kind of hit against the strategies they've taken there. Not that I think... Nevertheless, there are still some rules. Like You can't basically have third-party organizations um, spending on behalf of candidates, particularly in coordination with them. There's expense and contribution limits. Yeah, uh, the idea being... And whatnot. Like, it's and a, corporate it's a union donations. And so if you have an yeah. organization collecting money in unknown amounts and spending it in unknown amounts for a candidate and in coordination with that candidate. It's a way of laundering money, right? Not in the way we usually think of, but it's a way to have dark money move through politics. If a church group or a far-right group was doing something, or BC Proud was trying to run Aaron Gunn's campaign, you could see this same kind of strategy. So the questions all really center around, was Dogwood partisan? As in, were they specifically endorsing Apadurai, and did she work with them? Well, it's pretty unambiguous that they were endorsing her on it. The real question is whether or not there was any coordination, and it mostly centers around August 6th, a Zoom call between Apadura and the Dogwood people. On so that that's worth where- being clear about. This was a, not just her and Dogwood, right? This was a, a Zoom call... Sh- she organized, she says she invited Dogwood, she invited other climate activists, people who 
were quite prominent. I think Avi Lewis was there. David Suzuki might have been there. A number of other just like people around, like dozens. This wasn't just a one-on-one meeting to strategize. This was kind of a, here's an opportunity. Let's discuss what we should do. It can be characterized one way as planning her campaign. And that's how it ultimately got characterized in the call report that we'll get to. I think it could also be characterized as just a broad, what does the environmental movement want to accomplish in this leadership race, which resulted in Apadurai should run? In that latter scenario, it's not a campaign meeting. It's a broad like interest meeting that ends up creating a campaign at the end. That That is her characterization of it. Based on the quotes that were in the chief electoral officer's report, I generally don't find that to be a too compelling uh, version of events. It really does seem that this was a, that there was more than just an interest in, okay, we both want to see Apadurai become the leader. There, There was talk about, okay, how do you actually make that happen related to membership sign up, nating on data, especially related to send, having people send their membership receipts to the campaign and all of that. And, you know, that based on that, like my reading of this is that, yeah, it was actually a case of coordination um, on that because there was actual details discussed and not a general, okay, this is where we want to be at the end of it all. Neither of us have watched the full video. So it's how, you know, it's about how strong you take the call report because the call report is written towards the end of disqualifying her. Now, it's not a form. So let's talk about what this report is. The BCNDP Chief Elections Officer Elizabeth Call is given complaints about this imp- alleged impropriety between her campaign and Dogwood. Those complaints were driven largely by the EB campaign, it turns out, including a lot of the evidence that was turned over in three separate incidents. She talks about this in her own report, and Vaughn Palmer also covered it in the tr- Vancouver Sun. And so she goes through those complaints and writes up a report in the end, following some back and forth with her campaign for a bit more information, some back and forth with EB's campaign for a bit more information. She writes a final report recommending her candidacy be disqualified. She explored a couple other options. She said, what if we just disqualify all the members who signed up after a certain, after she launched? She grants that would be horribly unfair. to people who signed up in good faith, which was the overwhelming majority in her own finding. And the other option was fines. And she didn't think that would recoup the reputation damage and the harms caused by, quote, fraudulent memberships, which we'll get into shortly, I'm sure. So that's the report that gets created. Last week, it was given to the table officers of the BCNDP. These are like the president and secretary of the party apparatus. They consider it, they give Apadurai a chance to do an oral defense, which is what she wrote up and leaked or released herself. The call report is leaked on Tuesday, I think it was, just before it went to the NDP's executive, which is a representative body of about 40 people who met and discussed for four hours. They spent 40 minutes deciding whether or not to let Apadurai give a defense at that meeting, ultimately saying no which is just the worst kind of committee hell I can imagine. I've never been in a meeting that bad, but Christ. They then went on to spend a few more hours to ultimately decide to 
uh, reject her candidacy. Not having her, not giving her the opportunity to defend herself at the meeting is probably not going to look good if this goes to court, though the courts are often unwilling to dig too deeply into the internal affairs of political parties. So it may not go there anyway. And so that's the call report. So as I mentioned, like the other half of it, right, is this, are the, were the members legitimate? After the Czech news piece from Rob Shaw comes out, there were a lot of allegations, particularly from like NDP partisans on Twitter, not necessarily like caucus members, but people who are very quick to wear the orange jersey and defend the team no matter what, that this was a hostile takeover attempt by BC Green Party members, that these weren't true supporters or people who didn't share NDP values, that kind of stuff. And this like narrative around a green takeover really tried to get pushed out there. A few people pointed out that the Greens had only 35 or 4,000 members. So just mathematically, it doesn't work. Party that's like barely clinging to official. I'm not even sure if they have official. Yes. I think it got made. They, yeah, that's yeah. Just cleaning on to official party status is not the one that is going to be able to execute a takeover of governing party on that. So that's a little ridiculous. The framing on that is just bad strategically because normally you want to welcome people in to it, and trying to paint this as a green takeover is just a bad way to go about this, and ultimately I think undermines them in a way that if they just focused on the alleged breaches of the the rules, which in addition to what was mentioned in the call report, there's also reporting back from early September about her appearing on a social media live stream event with Atia Jaffer from 350.org, where they suggested that people need help with the $10 membership fee they could contact them and help get paid for, which is blatantly illegal under the act. You can't pay for other people's memberships. No. It's something that has happened in pretty much every leadership race, but legally it's not okay. Yeah, that's why On Patrick that, Brown doesn't have a role exactly. in the race, allegedly. Yeah, and that's the thing. Is every leadership race has to some extent or another people skirting the rules, if not breaking them outright. If you get caught doing it and saying the illegal part out loud on a social media live stream is a pretty good way to get caught doing that. It's going to be, it's the case where you're going to invite problems and invite disqualification, even though this thing didn't feature too heavily in yeah. there. But if you wanted to make the case about the disqualification was needed to restore the integrity and why the disqualification was needed, focusing on stuff like that over, we're bringing in supporters from another political party, like people who would have supported a different party, but are now supporting our party is probably not the best idea. Yeah. So the uh, reason I think they that. couldn't go that route is they didn't have evidence. They did a membership audit, a strong membership audit. And there were a lot of people quite frustrated by this on Twitter because they were being essentially interrogated about have you now or ever been a member of the Green Party by NDP volunteers, which is a weird welcome to the party that you've signed up to support. But on that video you mentioned, Apadurai apologized for it. And they both, both 350.org and Apadurai said, no one took us up on it. And we apologize. They, they admitted their naive mistakes. And Apadurai's defense is that she wasn't paying close attention at the time. Like she was more focused and a lot of things like in our conversations, I listen to like half of the things you say, Scott, I'm just kidding. But you know how live <laughs> conversations can go bit of a defense there. I think what's like overall interesting about this entire debacle is like, 
a lot of the stuff she and Dogwood did isn't horribly out of the ordinary for political leadership races. They just did it very publicly because these are like hyper online campaigns. Like historically, there was always some backroom deals or some backroom meetings, at least like David Eby undoubtedly had exploratory meetings with unions, with industry groups, with other kinds of stakeholders. And those aren't illegal or shady, but some of them may have said, hey, we'll get our members to come out and support you. And he says, that's great. I'll run because I have your backing. Just like kind things they say to each other, but that doesn't mean that EB coordinated with the unions, even though the unions did go out and send letters to their supporters to sign up and get him elected. But there is like a gray zone there, right? Because when does we're just having a stakeholder meeting transition to that coordination And when they have it recorded and they're doing it all publicly, it's different than when it's in like a closed back room or whatever, just office. Yeah, there's a saying that it's not the the crime that's the problem, it's the cover-up. It's a fairly common saying in politics. In this case, it was the lack of the cover-up that really did them in. It's not even trying to hide the tracks of doing the stuff that a lot of leadership rate leaderships have done in the past. And... I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to is like once the stuff was, pu- well, maybe not ultimately, but like that's a big factor. It's like once the stuff was public, it's you're between a rock and a hard place. Either you address it with stuff like disqualification or serious fines or you don't. And either way, you're going to leave some group feeling like they're not getting a fair shake or that the whole thing is kind of messy and tainted on that. And like the NDP and EB basically did everything wrong that was possible in this like they played the whole situation terribly from the decision to not have somebody run as a like a placeholder candidate to just actually create a race to running um, a race yeah to like barely running a race to not to like aggressively interrogating people in a way that became public to having to do a messy disqualification on it to like it, like the whole thing was a complete mess from their part, but it also sh- does seem like enough impropriety happened and happened in public enough view that there's they're also within their right. And I think there's certainly a justifiable case to be made for the disqualification here. Like that's the thing, right? I think that it's a place where you can make cases on both sides, and we don't have more of a definitive ruling than the BCNDP executive who arguably have a bias in terms of maintaining the party as it has been, which is what David Eby offers. And so people are going to be frustrated and you can make strong, you can make arguments on both sides. BC had actually opened an investigation into Dogwood's activities that would have been helpful (laughs) to answer, did they do things wrong? But they closed that investigation when she was disqualified because they noted if she's not an approved candidate, Nothing they did is wrong, <laughs> ironically. But if she was approved, it might have been. But uh, since it's that seems like a slightly question. That's probably true to the text of the. I've not read the details around our leadership. You're allowed candidates. to spend as much money as you want to help people who aren't running for political office, Scott. <laughs> yeah, but like also, it's noted in the call report that she just appointed official agents, opened campaign bank accounts before the. August sits meeting and whatnot. And just like with that, if it seems like there ought to be at least something that attaches to it when you start to set up a campaign infrastructure, even if you don't 
ultimately make it to the finish line on a technicality. That's where um, the renewed calls for, is there a point and purpose to Elections BC being more involved in internal party operations? And that's a bigger conversation I don't think we need to have here and right now. But this whole mess, the way the Conservative Party of Canada leadership went down in some ways, and just we've seen this again and again, that political parties are a core function and a core part of our democracy. But we're also letting them operate as like private little clubs that do whatever they want. And there's a reasonable case to be made for more oversight there. Yeah, in some respects, yes. I, although I have to say, I, I've somewhat soured on the the current way we do leadership races in Canada, which is mad dash to sign up as many people as possible who haven't been members before, lapsed members, and kind of your membership of convenience before they all kind of, a lot of them drop off after the vote. And I, ultimately, parties are there to win elections. And if they're not able to do that effectively, there isn't much point to the party and the party itself has some need or should have some role in ensuring that it's moving in that direction. Like pulling the strings on a leadership race isn't a great way to go about it, but the I don't know, just the model we're using I don't think really necessarily does a great job of it either. And it's probably too late to or impossible to roll back to delegated conventions and whatnot. But there's certainly been times in the past while where I think people lamented that there haven't been the ability for parties to have a greater role, thinking like the 2016 GOP nomination process as perhaps the most quintessential example There's the of that. UK approach that ironically, we were on hiatus longer than Liz Truss was prime minister, but their approach <laughs> is to have caucus essentially narrow down the candidates and then allow the membership to choose from the top candidates. And judging by the results, that's not a better system either. Yeah. But that may also yeah, speak well, a lot a to bit... just like the mess that entire country is in. So let's just not use it yeah, as an example. Yeah, like you can pick... Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily point to Tony Abbott as the reason why mandatory voting shouldn't happen. There's, but you yeah, could. <laughs> yeah, you... you it's like you could argue that like single cases pr- point to a bigger problem, but like it's it's always hard to separate out on specific things like that. But to bring it back to the report and the discussion here, one of the things that comes up in the call report is this: in this membership audit, it's pointed out that the test for being a member of the BC NDP is now not are you a member of any other parties and do you support New Democrat values, but do you support other parties and are you and do you support and or if you support other parties, which doesn't necessarily mean hold a membership. So there was like a number she pitches in there that it's like 25% of the audit shows that people are supporters of other parties, but it's not clear if that's just like they have said things that like, they like the things that are in the green platform, because honestly, the things in the BC green platform are largely pretty close to the things in the BC NDP platform. But are you not allowed to say that? And still be a BC NDP yeah. member? Or have you voted for other parties in the past? And I've people change. Had member- <laughs> yeah, like I've had memberships at both the provincial and federal levels for parties that I have not consistently voted for. <gasps> and yeah, I know, shocker, right? But like, that's the thing. It's like, you actually want to be able to have people change their mind, not get locked in. And it's it's not, it's weird that the NDP phrase their 
thing like that. And it's probably not a good sign for where the party's at. That's how they conceive their membership. Well, not helpful that if you were trying to sign up and it says agree with the constitution of the NDP or the BC NDP, that you can't actually find a copy on their website. Yeah, that's also a problem. Like most party membership things I've seen have some version of take here to show to specify that you're not a member of another party, which is fair, basically never check, except apparently in this case, this is actually the first time I've heard people like really actually this is where things got that. ridiculous during this whole debate is the executive director of the BC NDP comes out at one point and writes a letter to the BC Greens, asking if they would agree for an independent third party to like, take both of their membership lists and do a cross reference for both of their benefits. And the Greens are like, fuck no. Why would we do that? <laughs> and then the NDP is, you might be violating the law if you have fraudulent members too. And it's that was embarrassing. Yeah, that was very cringe. And no, they're probably, no, they're not going to. Like, they handed so much to the Greens here in terms of just like fodder to yell at them yeah. with. And to the BC Liberal Uniteds. No, the Greens aren't going to be in trouble for it. The Greens, I'm pretty sure, have. Elections BC, who's not even investigating this situation, is not going to investigate whether the Greens are a real party. Yeah. And like, how fra- Yeah, no, the, the whole thing's crazy. Yeah, the Greens probably have that same checkbox check on their membership application form. But if somebody then gets a green membership and a year later goes to get an NDP membership that doesn't like make the greens the baddies in this case that that's just absurd penis by the apadurai campaign and definitely NDP, by dogwood like, thing, thing, like everyone is sloppy we, in this and, like, and, and especially did, by the did a NDP. good job yeah. in this whole endeavor like, every single player <laughs> you all had one job each of you had one <laughs> yeah, job and pretty you all much. fucked it up and we didn't even mention how kainagata the director at Dogwood, his constant comments to media seemed to make things worse at every point. It seemed like he was trying to turn everything into a fundraising and membership drive for his own organization, which fair enough. But when the final thing comes out and your quote is, the NDP should be thanking me for signing up so many members, it's like, Jesus Christ, dude. (laughs) And so we get through all of this, the vote is held, it's all put behind us. John Horgan does his final press conference effectively and is asked a number of questions. David Eby had already come out with a letter to all supporters saying he knows many are undoubtedly sad with how this went down, but he's eager to work with everyone and move forward, blah, 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 BC Liberals suck. What you would expect, except he didn't ask for money. And I thought that was unique for an email from an NDP politician. Durai's campaign did send a fundraising request when meeting to disqualify her was happening. Like I didn't hate her on hate on her for that but i did joke on twitter that was proof more than anything that she's a true new democrat but yeah horgan ends his press conference getting asked by andrew mcleod of the tie like why don't you post the members of the ndp exec cock executive on the bc ndp website and horgan loses it loses it might be a little like there's like he definitely raises his voice and is not happy with the question. Yeah, and he pivots instead of like really answering the question to talking about how he's just seen this like BC Green takeover and he's having to deal and those executive members are having to deal with harassment from green thuggery. And I don't doubt that people who are terminally online have sent excessively aggressive and rude comments to members of those executives and that's not tolerable and yeah he, he also probably but has some lingering anger at the time a bunch of environmentalists 
went went to his house and like, protested his like wife and family and everything. And so there, it, it probably feels more personal to him than most of the the stuff in his press conferences. I'm like, fair enough. And he's clearly checked out <laughs> at this point. He's like, I'm out, so I don't need to care. But it was harsh. McLeod tried to ask a follow-up and Horgan basically just shut it down, said, we're done here, and just walked away from the mics, which was quite the way to end possibly his last press conference as premier. So yeah, that was a thing. But David Eby this morning did a press conference where he talked about his plan for the first 100 days. He talked about for quite a while at the start, though, how he, again, wanted to build bridges with the young environmentalists who'd signed up for the party and are hoping for change. And you know, he's going to listen with them, listen to them, and he's going to work with them. And clearly trying to actively build bridges and rebuild bridges rather than let things burn to the ground and come out of this I mean, good, but like, yeah, ba- Basic like points for competency <laughs> reading for the first time in this whole thing. Yeah. And then he outlines his four priorities, housing. Why don't I have this in my head? He outlines his four priorities, housing, healthcare, public safety, and environment. And even on the public safety thing, he tried to balance it between like the, I think his words were the people who are afraid in their downtown cores of people who are visibly ill. And he also wants to make sure that the people who have to, in his words, live in cardboard boxes and tents, they are also safe by getting them housing and getting them the supports they need. And so not a full, like, a compassionate lens, I think, to an issue that is very live in the province, which I was mostly happy to see. No specifics on any of those four things on what he's going to do over the next 100 days, other than he does have his housing plan that we've seen, but lots of values and vibes. Did you know his wife's a doctor? So he knows lots about <laughs> And healthcare. he's a lawyer, which is a combination that has never gone wrong in BC politics before. <laughs> Although I do have a feeling he's going to be more successful than uh, Andrew Wilkinson was. Yes. <laughs> he's already premier. Yeah. Um, almost. But that's Still unlikely to, to get disrupted at this point um, on that. And yeah, we're still a couple years away from the election. And other than the terminally online, I don't think too many people are really going to be remembering this or factoring it in come election time. The voters have short memories. Something will no doubt occupy the discourse in the meantime between now and then. And yeah, some dream partisans are probably going to be snippy about it in the, what would it be, 2024 election. And that is about the extent of where this is going to go, I think. I would watch for a couple of things. I'd watch for what energy the Green Party can capitalize out of this if they can pick off disaffected activists and soft support from the NDP, not necessarily for a poll bump, but for organizing and just building a ground game, especially outside Vancouver Island. The BC Liberals will try and play this up, but I think their stronger focus is on public safety and crime these days, which is going to be exhausting for me to listen to. And I'd also look to see where Apadurai goes. She said in her press conference, which ended up being like three hours late because of harbor air difficulties, which is uh, quite the, the har- relatable. Like if it was the ferry, or maybe not the harbor air, but just trying to get to the, the island. If it was the ferry, it would be difficult. extremely <laughs> relatable. But no, harbor air is not a particularly person of the people relatability point. It is cheaper than you might think. Politicos, now sponsored by Harbor Air. Uh, I wish. But in her press conference, she mentioned that she's not tearing up her card. She wants to keep working with the party. EB said he's eager to f- talk with her and 
stay engaged. He didn't promise anything specific because I don't think either of them have talked since this all went down or maybe just like a polite phone call. She has a database now of supporters that she is still building and maybe she's trying to push for activity within the party. That's been tried a lot of times in NDPs and always tends to fail, but good luck. Maybe this time entryism will work. But she's smart, right? She There were mistakes she made through this, but at the same time, she's not, oh, I'm quitting and joining the Greens now. She impressed a number of prominent journalists who are speaking out on this, released some policies that caught a lot of attention. Like She released a very detailed health plan, which People could criticize for its unaffordability, but also you look around at the state of healthcare and she kind of presented something that rises to the challenge in some ways. And, you know, what happens to her next? If Evie's smart, he's trying to make sure she stays within the tent, within more of a contained, like, here, you're going to run in this riding. Once you're there, you'll have a junior portfolio and we'll see where we go. And that would be kind of an ideal scenario to capture some of that energy and not have it working against you. I mean, like, her home base is Vancouver. She ran in Vancouver Dranville in the last election, and there aren't exactly, a, at least at this time, any indication any of the NDP MLAs are in Vancouver looking to retire. I don't know, maybe she'll give federal politics another kick at the can with the, uh, with the Liberals seeming to be in terminal trouble these days. Vancouver Granville might actually be a more successful path going forward for her. You have people like Adrian Dix, George Chow, who've been in politics for quite a while representing parts of Vancouver. So there are opportunities there. People like Nikki Sharma probably aren't going to be retiring anytime soon, or Brenda Bailey or Spencer Chandler Herbert. But yeah, maybe Chow or Adrian Dix is out in the next couple of years. The other thing to really watch for is just what cabinet Evie pulls together. I'm hearing rumors there's going to be significant shakeups. We could see Adrian Dix finally moved out of health, and I'm sure that'll make a lot of Twitter very happy in many ways. And it's probably time for a shakeup there. Just the flu stuff, flu vaccines haven't gone and you just need to bring some new eyes in every so often. Lee Evie and Selena Robinson aren't on the best of terms. She was one of the few who didn't endorse him. So maybe she doesn't keep Minister of Finance, but then you can't just totally put her to the backbench because she is a smart and talented politician. Lots to watch for on that and how he performs just as leader. Because Evie has that feeling to me in many ways that like Adrian Dix kind of had when he, he became leader, which is like... Win knows his policy. Well, I don't think anyone's going to be saying that about Evie, but is he too like policy focused and not relatable enough to the broader public? It's not that we need the politicians you can have a beer with, but will he be able to connect? I think he's probably better off on that front than Kevin Falcon is. Nevertheless, like this is I think pretty clearly a step down for the NDP overall compared to John Horgan who a lot of people who are not New Democrats would say about Horgan, I'm, I'm not naturally an NDP voter, but I like Horgan. And I am not sure you're going to get many of the, nearly as many of those with David Eby at the helm. The, the premier dad energy is gone. And oh, this is just kind of a regular guy aspect of John Horgan. That I think is not, is not easily replaced and was the NDP's biggest asset. So it's going to be interesting to see. Also, like the first several years, it seemed like the NDP were basically the Teflon party, like not much stuck to them. They 
Their second electoral outing went way better than the 2017 one. And I sort of bound that with just the circumstances in 2020. But they're starting to take on baggage now that they weren't taking on before. And I think safe money is on the next election going to the NDP, but it's not a sure thing anymore. And they definitely did their best to damage the brand as hard as they could in what is supposed to be a fairly, not like a quick transition of power or anything, but should be an exciting time for the party, choosing a new leader. Like, you should be able to have some energy in there. And like, the risk we talked about at the start was always that it could be fracturous. Uh, <laughs> I didn't picture this. I pictured like the two caucus members whose personal bias animosity comes out and some of that like friction. But this was a really different way for it to go down then. Yeah, uh, I would have put my money on. But I think we both said at the start of the year, there was a high chance David Eby's gonna win soon even though we didn't know if there would be a leadership race but here we are yeah so a lot to watch for going forward we will be back at some point in the nearest future we're still trying to figure out exactly what form the podcast is going to take post hiatus but we do intend to be back on a fairly regular schedule going forward and no doubt there'll be plenty to talk about with david eby taking over the province yeah, and if you have thoughts on how what the podcast should look like going forward, email us, podcast at politicos.ca, get at us on Twitter at politicospod, hit us up in the Slack channel where we always are. And this will continue, Canby Report will continue soonish. Matthew and I have to figure out when. It'll all get balanced out. There'll be lots of leg and boot content going forward. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politicos.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Potnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.